Section 6 of The Fundamentals, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fundamentals, Volume 1, Section 6. History of the Higher Criticism, Part 1, by Dyson Haig. What is the meaning of the higher criticism? Why is it called higher? Higher than what? At the outset, it must be explained that the word higher is an academic term, used in this connection in a purely special or technical sense. It is not used in the popular sense of the word at all, and may convey a wrong impression to the ordinary man. Nor is it meant to convey the idea of superiority. It is simply a term of contrast. It is used in contrast to the phrase lower criticism. One of the most important branches of theology is called the science of biblical criticism, which has for its object the study of the history and contents and origins and purposes of the various books of the Bible. In the earlier stages of the science, biblical criticism was devoted to two great branches, the lower and the higher. The lower criticism was employed to designate the study of the text of the scripture and included the investigation of the manuscripts and the different readings in the various versions and codices and manuscripts in order that we may be sure we have the original words as they were written by the divinely inspired writers. The term generally used nowadays is textual criticism. If the phrase were used in the 20th century sense, Beza, Erasmus, Bengel, Griesbach, Lachmann, Tregellus, Tischendorf, Scrivener, Westcott, and Horth would be called lower critics, but the term is not nowadays used as a rule. The higher criticism, on the contrary, was employed to designate the study of the historic origins, the dates and authorship of the various books of the Bible, and that great branch of study which in the technical language of modern theology is known as introduction. It is a very valuable branch of biblical science and is of the highest importance as an auxiliary in the interpretation of the word of God. By its researches, floods of light may be thrown on the scriptures. The term higher criticism, then, means nothing more than the study of the literary structure of the various books of the Bible, and more especially of the Old Testament. Now this in itself is most laudable, it is indispensable. It is just such work as every minister or Sunday school teacher does when he takes up his Pelibet's notes or his Stalker's St. Paul or Geike's Hours with the Bible to find out all he can with regard to the portion of the Bible he is studying, the author, the date, the circumstances and purpose of its writing. Why is higher criticism identified with unbelief? How is it, then, that the higher criticism has become identified in the popular mind with attacks upon the Bible and the supernatural character of the Holy Scriptures? The reason is this. No study, perhaps, requires so devout a spirit and so exalted a faith in the supernatural as the pursuit of the higher criticism. It demands at once the ability of the scholar and the simplicity of the believing child of God. For without faith no one can explain the Holy Scriptures, and without scholarship no one can investigate historic origins. There is a higher criticism that is at once reverent in tone and scholarly in work. 
Hengstenberg, the German, and Horn, the Englishman, may be taken as examples. Perhaps the greatest work in English on the higher criticism is Horn's Introduction to the Critical Study and Knowledge of the Holy Scripture. It is a work that is simply massive in its scholarship and invaluable in its vast reach of information for the study of the Holy Scriptures. But Horn's introduction is too large a work. It is too cumbrous for use in this hurrying age. Carter's edition in two volumes contains 1,149 pages, and in ordinary book form would contain over 4,000 pages, i.e. about 10 volumes of 400 pages each. Latterly, it has been edited by Dr. Samuel Davidson, who practically adopted the views of Hupfield and Hall, and interpolated not a few of the modern German theories. But Horn's work from first to last is the work of a Christian believer, constructive, not destructive, fortifying faith in the Bible, not rationalistic. But the work of the higher critic has not always been pursued in a reverent spirit, nor in the spirit of scientific and Christian scholarship. Subjective Conclusions In the first place, the critics, who were the leaders, the men who have given name and force to the whole movement, have been men who have based their theories largely upon their own subjective conclusions. They have based their conclusions largely upon the very dubious basis of the author's style and supposed literary qualifications. Everybody knows that style is a very unsafe basis for the determination of a literary product. The greater the writer, the more versatile his power of expression, and anybody can understand that the Bible is the last book in the world to be studied as a mere classic by mere human scholarship, without any regard to the spirit of sympathy and reverence on the part of the student. The Bible, as has been said, has no revelation to make to unbiblical minds. It does not even follow that because a man is a philological expert, he is able to understand the integrity or credibility of a passage of Holy Scripture any more than the beauty and spirit of it. The qualification for the perception of biblical truth is neither philosophic nor philological knowledge, but spiritual insight. The primary qualification of the musician is that he be musical, of the artist that he have the spirit of art. So the merely technical and mechanical and scientific mind is disqualified for the recognition of the spiritual and infinite. Any thoughtful man must honestly admit that the Bible is to be treated as unique in literature, and therefore that the ordinary rules of critical interpretation must fail to interpret it aright. German Fancies in the second place, some of the most powerful exponents of the modern higher critical theories have been Germans, and it is notorious to what length the German fancy can go in the direction of the subjective and of the conjectural. For hypothesis-weaving and speculation, the German theological professor is unsurpassed. One of the foremost thinkers used to lay it down as a fundamental truth in philosophical and scientific inquiries that no regard whatever should be paid to the conjectures or hypotheses of thinkers, and quoted as an axiom the great Newton himself and his famous words, Non fingo hypothesis, I do not frame hypotheses. It is notorious that some of the most learned German thinkers are men who lack in a singular degree the faculty of common sense and knowledge of human nature. 
Like many physical scientists, they are so preoccupied with a theory that their conclusions seem to the average mind curiously warped. In fact, a learned man in a letter to Descartes once made an observation which, with slight verbal alteration, might be applied to some of the German critics. When men, sitting in their closet and consulting only their books, attempt disquisitions into the Bible, they may indeed tell how they would have made the book if God had given them that commission. That is, they may describe chimeras, which correspond to the fatuity of their own minds, but without an understanding truly divine, they can never form such an idea to themselves as the deity had in creating it. If, says Matthew Arnold, you shut a number of men up to make study and learning the business of their lives, how many of them, from want of some discipline or other, seem to lose all balance of judgment, all common sense? The learned professor of Assyriology at Oxford said that the investigation of the literary source of history has been a peculiarly German pastime. It deals with the writers and readers of the ancient Orient as if they were modern German professors, and the attempt to transform the ancient Israelites into somewhat inferior German compilers proves a strange want of familiarity with Oriental modes of thought. Anti-supernaturalists In the third place, the dominant men of the movement were men with a strong bias against the supernatural. This is not an ex-party statement at all. It is simply a matter of fact, as we shall presently show. Some of the men who have been most distinguished as the leaders of the higher critical movement in Germany and Holland have been men who have no faith in the God of the Bible and no faith in either the necessity or the possibility of a personal supernatural revelation. The men who have been the voices of the movement of whom the great majority less widely known and less influential, have been mere echoes. The men who manufactured the articles the others distributed have been notoriously opposed to the miraculous. We must not be misunderstood. We distinctly repudiate the idea that all the higher critics were or are anti-supernaturalists. Not so. The British-American school embraces within its ranks many earnest believers. What we do say, as we will presently show, is that the dominant minds which have led and swayed the movement, who made the theories that the others circulated, were strongly unbelieving. Then the higher critical movement has not followed its true and original purposes in investigating the scriptures for the purposes of confirming faith and of helping believers to understand the beauties and appreciate the circumstances of the origin of the various books and so understand more completely the Bible. No, it has not. Unquestionably, it has not. It has been deflected from that, largely owing to the character of the men whose ability and forcefulness have given predominance to their views. It has become identified with a system of criticism which is based on hypotheses and suppositions, which have for their object the repudiation of the traditional theory, and has investigated the origins and forms and styles and contents, apparently not to confirm the authenticity and credibility and reliability of the scriptures, but to discredit, in most cases, their genuineness, to discover discrepancies, and throw doubt upon their authority. 
the origin of the movement. Who then were these men whose views have moulded the views of the leading teachers and writers of the higher critical school of today? We will answer this as briefly as possible. It is not easy to say who is the first so-called higher critic or when the movement began, but it is not modern by any means. Broadly speaking, it has passed through three great stages. First, the French-Dutch, second, the German, third, the British-American. In its origin, it was Franco-Dutch and speculative, if not sceptical. The views which are now accepted as axiomatic by the continental and British-American schools of higher criticism seem to have been first hinted at by Karlstadt in 1521 in his work on the canon of scripture, and by Andreas Marsius, a Belgian scholar who published a commentary on Joshua in 1574, and a Roman Catholic priest called Perer or Perius in his Systematic Theology, 1660. But it may really be said to have originated with Spinoza, the rationalist Dutch philosopher. In his Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, 1670, Spinoza came out boldly and impugned the traditional date and mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch and described the origin of the Pentateuch to Ezra or to some other late compiler. Spinoza was really the fountainhead of the movement, and his line was taken in England by the British philosopher Hobbes. He went deeper than Spinoza as an outspoken antagonist of the necessity and possibility of a personal revelation, and also denied the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. A few years later, a French priest called Richard Simon of Dieppe pointed out the supposed varieties of style as indications of various authors in his historical criticism of the Old Testament, an epoch-making work. Then, another Dutchman, named Clericus, in 1685, advocated still more radical views, suggesting an exilian and priestly authorship for the Pentateuch, and that the Pentateuch was composed by the priest sent from Babylon, 2 Kings 17, about 678 BC, and also a kind of later editor or redactor theory. Clericus is said to have been the first critic who set forth the theory that Christ and his apostles did not come into the world to teach the Jews criticism, and that it is only to be expected that their language would be in accordance with the views of the day. In 1753, a Frenchman named Astruc, a medical man and reputedly a free thinker of profligate life, propounded for the first time the Jehovistic and Eloistic divisive hypothesis and opened a new era. Astruc said that the use of the two names, Jehovah and Elohim, showed the book was composed of different documents. The idea of the Holy Ghost employing two words, or one here and another there, or both together as he wills, never seems to enter the thought of the higher critic. His work was called Conjectures Regarding the Original Memoirs of the Book of Genesis, and was published in Brussels. Astruc may be called the father of the documentary theories. 
he asserted there are traces of no less than ten or twelve different memoirs in the book of Genesis. He denied its divine authority and considered the book to be disfigured by useless repetitions, disorder, and contradiction. For fifty years, Astruc's theory was unnoticed. The rationalism of Germany was as yet undeveloped, so that the body was not prepared to receive the germ or the soil the weed. The German Critics the next stage was largely German. Eichhorn is the greatest name in this period, the eminent Oriental professor at Göttingen, who published his work on the Old Testament introduction in 1780. He put into different shape the documentary hypothesis of the Frenchman, and did his work so ably that his views were generally adopted by the most distinguished scholars. Eichhorn's formative influence has been incalculably great. Few scholars refused to do honour to the new son. It is through him that the name Higher Criticism has become identified with the movement. He was followed by Vater and later by Hartmann with their fragmentary theory, which practically undermined the mosaic authorship, made the Pentateuch a heap of fragments, carelessly joined by one editor, and paved the way for the most radical of all divisive hypotheses. In 1806, de Wetter, professor of philosophy and theology at Heidelberg, published a work which ran through six editions in four decades. His contribution to the introduction of the Old Testament instilled the same general principles as Eichhorn, and in the supplemental hypotheses assumed that Deuteronomy was composed in the age of Josiah. 2 Kings 22 verse 8 not long after, Fatke and Leopold Georger, both Hegelians, unreservedly declared the post-Mosaic and post-prophetic origin of the first four books of the Bible. Then came Bleek, who advocated the idea of a Grundschrift or original document and the redactor theory, and then Ewald, the father of the crystallization theory, and then Hupfield, 1853, who held that the original document was an independent compilation, and Graf, who wrote a book on the historical books of the Old Testament in 1866, and advocated the theory that the Jehovistic and Eloistic documents were written hundreds of years after Moses' time. Graf was a pupil of Royce, the redactor of the Ezra hypothesis of Spinoza. Then came a most influential writer, Professor Kuhnen of Leiden in Holland, whose work on the Hexateuch was edited by Colenso in 1865, and his Religion of Israel and Prophecy in Israel, published in England in 1874 to 1877. Kuhnen was one of the most advanced exponents of the rationalistic school. Last, but not least, of the continental higher critics is Julius Wehausen, who at one time was a theological professor in Germany, who published in 1878 the first volume of his History of Israel, and won by his scholarship the attention, if not the allegiance, of a number of leading theologians. It will be observed that nearly all these authors were Germans, and most of them professors of philosophy or theology. The British-American Critics The third stage of the movement is the British-American the best-known names are those of Dr. Samuel Davidson, whose introduction to the Old Testament, published in 1862, was largely based on the fallacies of the German rationalists, 
the supplementary hypothesis passed over into England through him, and with strange incongruity he borrowed frequently from Bauer. Dr. Robertson Smith, the Scotchman, recast the German theories in an English form in his works on the Pentateuch, the Prophets of Israel, and the Old Testament in the Jewish Church, first published in 1881, and followed the German school, according to Briggs, with great boldness and thoroughness. A man of deep piety and high spirituality, he combined with a sincere regard for the word of God a critical radicalism that was strangely inconsistent, as did also his namesake, George Adam Smith, the most influential of the present-day leaders, a man of great insight and spiritual acumen, who in his works on Isaiah and the Twelve Prophets adopted some of the most radical and least demonstrable of the German theories, and in his later work, modern criticism and the teaching of the Old Testament, has gone still farther in the rationalistic direction. Another well-known higher critic is Dr. S. R. Driver, the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford, who, in his Introduction to the Literature of the Old Testament, published ten years later, and his work on the book of Genesis, has elaborated with remarkable skill and great detail of analysis the theories and views of the Continental School. Driver's work is able, very able, but it lacks originality and English independence. The hand is the hand of Driver, but the voice is the voice of Kuhnen or Wellhausen. The third well-known name is that of Dr. C. A. Briggs, for some time Professor of Biblical Theology in the Union Theological Seminary of New York. An equally earnest advocate of the German theories, he published in 1883 his Biblical Study, in 1886 his Messianic Prophecy, and a little later his Higher Criticism of the Hexateuch. Briggs studied the Pentateuch, as he confesses, under the guidance chiefly of Ewald. Of course, this list is a very partial one, but it gives most of the names that have become famous in connection with the movement, and the reader who desires more will find a complete summary of the literature of the higher criticism in Professor Bissell's work on the Pentateuch. Briggs, in his Higher Criticism of the Hexateuch, gives an historical summary also. We must now investigate another question, and that is the religious views of the men most influential in this movement. In making the statement that we are about to make, we desire to depreciate entirely the idea of there being anything uncharitable, unfair or unkind in stating what is simply a matter of fact. The Views of the Continental Critics Regarding the views of the Continental Critics, three things can be confidently asserted of nearly all, if not all, of the real leaders. 1. They were men who denied the validity of miracle and the validity of any miraculous narrative. What Christians considered to be miraculous, they considered legendary or mythical. Legendary exaggerations of events that are entirely explicable from natural causes. 2. They were men who denied the reality of prophecy and the validity of any prophetical statement. What Christians have been accustomed to consider prophetical they called dexterous conjectures, coincidences, fiction, or imposture. 3. They were men who denied the reality of revelation in the sense in which it has ever been held by the universal Christian church. They were avowed unbelievers of the supernatural. Their theories were excogitated on pure grounds of human reasoning. 
their hypotheses were constructed on the assumption of the falsity of Scripture. As to the inspiration of the Bible, as to the Holy Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation being the Word of God, they had no such belief. We may take them one by one. Spinoza repudiated absolutely a supernatural revelation. And Spinoza was one of their greatest. Eichhorn discarded the miraculous and considered that the so-called supernatural event was an oriental exaggeration, and Eichhorn has been called the father of higher criticism and was the first man to use the term. De Wetter's views as to inspiration were entirely infidel. Fadke and Leopold George were Hegelian rationalists and regarded the first four books of the Old Testament as entirely mythical. Kunin, says Professor Sande, wrote in the interests of an almost avowed naturalism. That is, he was a free thinker, an agnostic, a man who did not believe in the revelation of the one true and living God. He wrote from an avowedly naturalistic standpoint, says Driver. According to Verhausen, the religion of Israel was a naturalistic evolution from heathendom, an emanation from an imperfectly monotheistic kind of semi-pagan idolatry. It was simply a human religion. The leaders were rationalists. In one word, the formative forces of the higher critical movement were rationalistic forces, and the men who were its chief authors and expositors who, on account of purely philological criticism, have acquired an appalling authority, were men who had discarded belief in God and Jesus Christ, whom he had sent. The Bible, in their view, was a mere human product. It was a stage in the literary evolution of a religious people. If it was not the resultant of a fortuitous concourse of oriental myths and legendary accretions, and its Jave or Yahweh, the excogitation of a Sinaitic clan, it certainly was not given by the inspiration of God, and is not the word of the living God. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, said Peter. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake by the prophets, said Paul. Not so, said Cunan. The prophets were not so moved to speak by God. Their utterances were all their own. These, then, were their views, and these were the views that have so dominated modern Christianity and permeated modern ministerial thought in the two great languages of the modern world. We cannot say that they were men whose rationalism was the result of their conclusions in the study of the Bible, nor can we say their conclusions with regard to the Bible were wholly the result of their rationalism. But we can say, on the one hand, that inasmuch as they refused to recognize the Bible as a direct revelation from God, they were free to form hypotheses ad libitum. And, on the other hand, as they denied the supernatural, the animus that animated them in the construction of the hypotheses was the desire to construct a theory that would explain away the supernatural. Unbelief was the antecedent, not the consequence, of their criticism. Now, there is nothing unkind in this, there is nothing that is uncharitable or unfair, it is simply a statement of fact which modern authorities most freely admit. The School of Compromise When we come to the English writing higher critics, we approach a much more difficult subject. The British-American higher critics represent a school of compromise. On the one hand, they practically accept the premises of the Continental School with regard to the antiquity, authorship, authenticity and origins of the Old Testament books. 
On the other hand, they refused to go with the German rationalists in altogether denying their inspiration. They still claim to accept the scriptures as containing a revelation from God. But may they not hold their own peculiar views with regard to the origin and date and literary structure of the Bible without endangering either their own faith or the faith of Christians? This is the very heart of the question, and in order that the reader may see the seriousness of the adoption of the conclusions of the critics, as brief a resume as possible of the matter will be given. The Point in a Nutshell According to the faith of the Universal Church, the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible, is one consistent, coherent, authentic, and genuine composition, inspired by God, and according to the testimony of the Jews, the statement of the books themselves, the reiterated corroborations of the rest of the Old Testament, and the explicit statement of the Lord Jesus. Luke 24.44, John 5.46-47 was written by Moses, with the exception, of course, of Deuteronomy 34, possibly written by Joshua, as the Talmud states, or probably by Ezra, at a period of about 14 centuries before the advent of Christ, and 800 years or so before Jeremiah. It is, moreover, a portion of the Bible that is of paramount importance, for it is the basic substratum of the whole revelation of God and of paramount value not because it is merely the literature of an ancient nation, but because it is the introductory section of the word of God, bearing his authority, and given by inspiration through his servant Moses. That is the faith of the church. The Critics' Theory But, according to the higher critics, one, the Pentateuch consists of four completely diverse documents. These completely different documents were the primary sources of the composition, which they call the Hexateuch, a. The Yahwist or Jarvist, B. The Eloist, C. The Deuteronomist, and D. The Priestly Source, the Grundschrift, the work of the first Eloist, now generally known as J, E, D, P, and for convenience designated by these symbols. 2. These different works were composed at various periods of time, not in the 15th century BC, but in the 9th, 7th, 6th, and 5th centuries, J and E being referred approximately to about 800 to 700 BC, D to about 650 to 625 BC, and P to about 525 to 425 BC. According to the Graf theory accepted by Kuhnen, the Eloist documents were post-exilian, that is, they were written only five centuries or so before Christ. Genesis and Exodus, as well as the priestly code, that is Leviticus and part of Exodus and Numbers, were also post-exilic. 3. These different works, moreover, represent different traditions in the national life of the Hebrews, and are at variance in most important particulars. 4. And further, they conjecture that these four supposative documents were not compiled or written by Moses, but were probably constructed somewhat after this fashion. For some reason, and at some time, and in some way, someone, no one knows who, or why, or when, or where, wrote J. Then someone else, no one knows who, or why, or when, or where, wrote another document which is called E. And then, at a later time, the critics only know who, or why, or when, or where, an anonymous personage, 
whom we may call Redactor 1, took in his hand the reconstruction of these documents, introduced new material, harmonized the real and apparent discrepancies, and divided the inconsistent accounts of one event into two separate transactions. Then, some time after this, perhaps one hundred years or more, no one knows who or why or when or where, some anonymous personage wrote another document, which they styled D., and after a while, another anonymous author, no one knows who or why or when or where, whom we will call Redactor 2, took this in hand, compared it with J.E., revised J.E. with considerable freedom, and in addition introduced quite a body of new material. Then someone else, no one knows who or why or when or where, probably, however, about 525 or perhaps 425, wrote P. And then another anonymous Hebrew, whom we may call Redactor 3, took to incorporate this with the triplicated composition J.E.D. with what they call redactional additions and insertions. It may be well to state at this point that this is not an exaggerated statement of the higher critical position. On the contrary, we have given here what has been described as a position established by proofs valid and cumulative and representing the most sober scholarship. The more advanced continental higher critics, Green says, distinguish the writers of the primary sources according to the supposed elements as J1 and J2, E1 and E2, P1, P2 and P3, and D1 and D2, nine different originals in all. The different redactors, technically described by the symbol R, are R.J., who combined J and E, R.D., who combined D to J.E., and R.H., who completed the hexateuch by combining P with J.E.D. A discredited Pentateuch. Five, these four suppositive documents are, moreover, alleged to be internally inconsistent and undoubtedly incomplete. How far they are incomplete, they do not agree. How much is missing, and when, where, how, and by whom it was removed, whether it was some thief who stole, or copyist who tampered, or editor who falsified, they do not declare. 6. In this redactory process, no limit apparently is assigned by the critic to the work of the redactors. With an utter irresponsibility of freedom, it is declared that they inserted misleading statements with the purpose of reconciling incompatible traditions, that they amalgamated what should have been distinguished and sundered that which should have been amalgamated. In one word, it is an axiomatic principle of the divisive hypothesizers that the redactors have not only misapprehended, but misrepresented the originals. They were animated by egotistical motives. They confused varying accounts and erroneously ascribed them to different occasions. They not only gave false and coloured impressions, they destroyed valuable elements of the suppositive documents and tampered with the dismantled remnant. 7. And worst of all, the higher critics are unanimous in the conclusion that these documents contain three species of material. A. The probably true. B. The certainly doubtful. C. The positively spurious. The narratives of the Pentateuch are usually trustworthy, though partly mythical and legendary. The miracles recorded were the exaggerations of a later age. 
The framework of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, says George Adam Smith in his Modern Criticism and the Preaching of the Old Testament, is woven from the raw material of myth and legend. He denies their historical character and says that he can find no proof in archaeology for the personal existence of characters of the patriarchs themselves. Later on, however, in a fit of apologetic repentance, he makes the condescending admission that it is extremely probable that the stories of the patriarchs have at the heart of them historical elements. Such is the view of the Pentateuch that is accepted as conclusive by the sober scholarship of a number of the leading theological writers and professors of the day. It is to this the higher criticism reduces what the Lord Jesus called the writings of Moses. A discredited Old Testament. As to the rest of the Old Testament, it may be briefly said that they have dealt with it with an equally confusing hand. The time-honoured traditions of the Catholic Church are set at naught, and its thesis of the relation of inspiration and genuineness and authenticity derided. As to the Psalms, the harp that was once believed to be the harp of David was not handled by the sweet psalmist of Israel, but generally by some anonymous post-exilist. And psalms that are ascribed to David by the omniscient Lord himself are daringly attributed to some anonymous Maccabean. Ecclesiastes, written, nobody knows when, where, or by whom, possesses just a possible grade of inspiration, though one of the critics of cautious and well-balanced judgment denies that it contains any at all. Of course, says another, it is not really the work of Solomon. The Song of Songs is an idol of human love, and nothing more. There is no inspiration in it, it contributes nothing to the sum of revelation. Esther, too, adds nothing to the sum of Revelation and is not historical. Isaiah was, of course, written by a number of authors. The first part, chapters 1 to 40, by Isaiah. The second, by a Deutero-Isaiah and a number of anonymous authors. As to Daniel, it was a purely pseudonymous work, written probably in the 2nd century BC. With regard to the New Testament, the English writing school has hitherto confined themselves mainly to the Old Testament, but if Professor Sandy, who passes as a most conservative and moderate representative of the critical school, can be taken as a sample, the historical books are yet in the first instance strictly histories put together by ordinary historical methods, or insofar as the methods on which they are composed are not ordinary, due rather to the peculiar circumstances of the case, and not to influences which need be specially described as supernatural. The second epistle of Peter is pseudonymous, its name counterfeit, and therefore a forgery, just as large parts of Isaiah, Zechariah, and Jonah, and Proverbs were suppositious and quasi-fraudulent documents. This is a straightforward statement of the position taken by what is called the moderate school of higher criticism. It is their own admitted position according to their writings. The difficulty, therefore, that presents itself to the average man of today is this. How can these critics still claim to believe in the Bible as the Christian church has ever believed it? A discredited Bible. There can be no doubt that Christ and his apostles accepted the whole of the Old Testament as inspired in every portion of every part. From the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Malachi, all was implicitly believed to be the very word of God himself. And ever since their day, the view of the universal Christian church has been that the Bible is the word of God. As the 20th article of the Anglican Church terms it, it is God's word written. 
The Bible as a whole is inspired. All that is written is God-inspired. That is, the Bible does not merely contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God. It contains a revelation. All is not revealed, but all is inspired. This is the conservative, and up to the present day, the almost universal view of the question. There are, it is well known, many theories of inspiration, but whatever view or theory of inspiration men may hold, plenary, verbal, dynamical, mechanical, superintendent, or governmental, they refer either to the inspiration of the men who wrote, or to the inspiration of what is written. In one word, they imply throughout the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and are bound up with the concomitant ideas of authority, veracity, reliability, and truth divine. The two strongest works on the subject from this standpoint are by Gaussen and Lee. Gaussen on the Theopnevstia is published in an American edition by Hitchcock and Walden of Cincinnati, and Lee on the inspiration of Holy Scripture is published by Rivington's. Bishop Wordsworth in the inspiration of the Bible is also very scholarly and strong. The Bible can no longer, according to the critics, be viewed in this light. It is not the word in the old sense of that term. It is not the word of God in the sense that all of it is given by the inspiration of God. It simply contains the word of God. In many of its parts, it is just as uncertain as any other human book. It is not even reliable history. Its records of what it does narrate as ordinary history are full of falsifications and blunders. The origin of Deuteronomy, for example, was a consciously refined falsification. The real difficulty. But do they still claim to believe that the Bible is inspired? Yes, that is in a measure. As Dr. Driver says in his preface, criticism in the hands of Christian scholars does not banish or destroy the inspiration of the Old Testament, it presupposes it. That is perfectly true. Criticism in the hands of Christian scholars is safe. But the preponderating scholarship in Old Testament criticism has admittedly not been in the hands of men who could be described as Christian scholars. It has been in the hands of men who disavow belief in God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Criticism in the hands of Horn or Hengstenberg does not banish or destroy the inspiration of the Old Testament, but in the hands of Spinoza and Graf and Wellhausen and Kuhnen, inspiration is neither presupposed nor possible. Dr. Briggs and Dr. Smith may avow earnest avowals of belief in the divine character of the Bible, and Dr. Driver may assert that critical conclusions do not touch either the authority or the inspiration of the scriptures of the Old Testament, but from first to last they treat God's word with an indifference almost equal to that of the Germans. They certainly handle the Old Testament as if it were ordinary literature, and in all their theories they seem like plastic wax in the hands of the rationalistic moulders but they still claim to believe in biblical inspiration. A revolutionary theory. Their theory of inspiration must be, then, a very different one from that held by the average Christian. In the Bampton Lectures for 1903, Professor Sanday of Oxford, as the exponent of the later and more conservative school of higher criticism, came out with a theory which he termed the inductive theory. It is not easy to describe what is fully meant by this, but it appears to mean the presence of what they call a divine element in certain parts of the Bible. What that really is, he does not accurately declare. The language always vapours off into the vague and indefinite whenever he speaks of it. In what books it is, he does not say. 
It is present in different books and parts of books in different degrees. In some, the divine element is at the maximum, in others at the minimum. He is not always sure. He is sure it is not in Esther, in Ecclesiastes, in Daniel. If it is in the historical books, it is there as conveying a religious lesson rather than as a guarantee of historic veracity, rather as interpreting than as narrating. At the same time, if the histories as far as textual construction was concerned were natural processes carried out naturally, it is difficult to see where the divine or supernatural element comes in. It is an inspiration which seems to have been devised as a hypothesis of compromise. In fact, it is a tenuous, equivocal, and indeterminate something, the amount of which is as indefinite as its quality. But its most serious feature is this. It is a theory of inspiration that completely overturns the old-fashioned ideas of the Bible and its unquestioned standard of authority and truth. For whatever this so-called divine element is, it appears to be quite consistent with defective argument, incorrect interpretation, if not what the average man would call forgery or falsification. It is, in fact, revolutionary. To accept it, the Christian will have to completely readjust his ideas of honour and honesty, of falsehood and misrepresentation. Men used to think that forgery was a crime and falsification a sin. Pusey, in his great work on Daniel, said that to write a book under the name of another and to give it out to be his is in any case a forgery, dishonest in itself and destructive of all trustworthiness. But according to the higher critical position, all sorts of pseudonymous material, and not a little of it believed to be by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is to be found in the Bible, and no antecedent objection ought to be taken to it. Men used to think that inaccuracy would affect reliability and that proven inconsistencies would imperil credibility. But now it appears that there may not only be mistakes and errors on the part of copyists, but forgeries, intentional omissions and misinterpretations on the part of authors. And yet, marvellous to say, faith is not to be destroyed, but to be placed on a firmer foundation. They have, according to Briggs, enthroned the Bible in a higher position than ever before. Sande admits that there is an element in the Pentateuch derived from Moses himself. An element? But he adds, however much we may believe that there is a genuine mosaic foundation in the Pentateuch, it is difficult to lay the finger upon it and to say with confidence, here Moses himself is speaking. The strictly mosaic element in the Pentateuch must be indeterminate. We ought not, perhaps, to use them, the visions of Exodus 3 and 33, without reserve for Moses himself. The ordinary Christian, however, will say, Surely, if we deny the Mosaic authorship and the unity of the Pentateuch, we must undermine its credibility. The Pentateuch claims to be Mosaic. It was the universal tradition of the Jews. It is expressly stated in nearly all the subsequent books of the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus said so most explicitly. John 5, 46-47 If not Moses, who? For this thought must surely follow to the thoughtful man. If Moses did not write the books of Moses, who did? If there were three or four or six or nine authorised original writers, why not fourteen or sixteen or nineteen? And then another and more serious thought must follow that. 
Who were these original writers, and who originated them? If there were manifest evidences of alterations, manipulations, inconsistencies and omissions by an indeterminate number of unknown and unknowable and undateable redactors, then the question arises, who were these redactors, and how far had they authority to redact, and who gave them this authority? If the redactor was the writer, was he an inspired writer? And if he was inspired, what was the degree of his inspiration? Was it partial, plenary, inductive, or indeterminate? This is a question of questions. What is the guarantee of the inspiration of the redactor? And who is its guarantor? Moses we know, and Samuel we know, and Daniel we know, but ye anonymous and pseudonymous, who are ye? The Pentateuch, with mosaic authorship, as scriptural, divinely accredited, is upheld by Catholic tradition and scholarship, and appeals to reason. But a mutilated cento, or scrapbook, of anonymous compilations, with its pre- and post-exilic redactors and redactions, is confusion worse confounded. At least, that is the way it appears to the average Christian, he may not be an expert in philosophy or theology, but his common sense must surely be allowed its rights. And that is the way it appears, too, to such an illustrious scholar and critic as Dr. Emil Reich. It is not possible, then, to accept the Kuhnen-Wellhausen theory of the structure of the Old Testament and the Sande-Driver theory of its inspiration without undermining faith in the Bible as the Word of God. For the Bible is either the Word of God, or it is not. The children of Israel were the children of the only living and true God, or they were not. If their Jehovah was a mere tribal deity and their religion a human evolution, if their sacred literature was natural with mythical and pseudonymous admixtures, then the Bible is dethroned from its throne as the exclusive, authoritative, divinely inspired word of God. It simply ranks as one of the sacred books of the ancients, with similar claims of inspiration and revelation. Its inspiration is an indeterminate quantity, and any man has a right to subject it to the judgment of his own critical insight, and to receive just as much of it as inspired as he or some other person believes to be inspired. When the contents have passed through the sieve of his judgment, the inspired residuum may be large, or the inspired residuum may be small. If he is a conservative critic, it may be fairly large, a maximum. If he is a more advanced critic, it may be fairly small, a minimum. It is simply the ancient literature of a religious people containing somewhere the word of God. A revelation of no one knows what, made no one knows how, and lying no one knows where, except that it is to be somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, but probably to the exclusion of both. No final authority. Another serious consequence of the higher critical movement is that it threatens the Christian system of doctrine and the whole fabric of systematic theology. For up to the present time, any text from any part of the Bible was accepted as a proof text for the establishment of any truth of Christian teaching, and a statement from the Bible was considered an end of controversy. The doctrinal systems of the Anglican, the Presbyterian, the Methodist, and other churches are all based upon the view that the Bible contains the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They accept as an axiom that the Old and New Testaments, in part and as a whole, have been given and sealed by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. All the doctrines of the Church of Christ, from the greatest to the least, are based on this. 
All the proofs of the doctrines are based also on this. No text was questioned, no book was doubted, all scripture was received by the great builders of our theological systems, with that unassailable belief in the inspiration of its texts, which was the position of Christ and his apostles. But now the higher critics think they have changed all that. They claim that the science of criticism has dispossessed the science of systematic theology. Canon Henson tells us that the day has gone by for proof texts and harmonies. It is not enough now for a theologian to turn to a book in the Bible and bring out a text in order to establish a doctrine. It might be in a book, or in a portion of the book, that the German critics have proved to be a forgery or an anachronism. It might be in Deuteronomy, or in Jonah, or in Daniel, and in that case, of course, it would be out of the question to accept it. The Christian system, therefore, will have to be readjusted, if not revolutionized. Every text and chapter and book will have to be inspected and analyzed in the light of its date and origin and circumstances and authorship and so on. And only after it has passed the examining board of the modern Franco-Dutch-German criticism will it be allowed to stand as a proof text for the establishment of any Christian doctrine. But the most serious consequence of this theory of the structure and inspiration of the Old Testament is that it overturns the juridic authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. End of section 6